Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this week we are reading and discussing The Seven Dials Mystery, Dame Agatha's final thriller novel. Very exciting. Also the final novel of the 20s. This was first published January 24th, 1929 by, of course, William Collins and Sons in the UK. And this novel revisits that treasured estate, <laughs> Chimneys, which we we first visited for The Secret of Chimneys four years earlier, both in the world of the story. It's made reference to the fact that The Secret of Chimneys took place four years earlier and in terms of publication. That was in 1925. So with that in mind, we're at Chimneys. The novel begins. Let's talk about our victim. So our victim is one Jerry Wade, and he is a school chum of a number of the parties who have gathered at Chimneys. Chimneys at this point is serving essentially as an Airbnb for the upper crust. (laughs) (laughs) What's basically happening here is that Lord Caterham and his daughter, Lady Eileen, a.k.a. Bundle, are the true owners and inheritors of Chimneys, and we last saw them in The Secret of Chimneys in possession of their house. They have rented chimneys for an unspecified period of time to these tenants, Sir Oswald Coote and his wife, Lady Coote. So the Coots are in possession of chimneys when we open, and they are playing host to a whole group of young things for the weekend. So it's a weekend party at Chimneys, and one of the guests is the aforementioned Jerry Wade. He's annoying to his fellow Airbnbers because he gets up far too late. He is the worst of them um, amongst um, his peers because he does not get up on time. He sleeps late. He doesn't realize it. They're all annoyed by him. He almost misses breakfast, practically lunchtime, before they can stop serving breakfast. Right, and he does, he, does, he does not join in any of the activities because he's far too late in it. And so um, the other sort of younger members of the household decide that they are going to play a prank upon him. They are going to purchase alarms for each and every one of them, plus for the other members of the household. So eight alarms in total. And they're going to basically set them off so that Jerry Wade has to get up first thing in the morning and that he's going to be freaked out about having to get up first thing in the morning. Right. And to be clear, these alarms are alarm clocks or as written in the novel, alarm alarm clocks. (laughs) Yes. 
which I thought was rather curious. So that's the prank. They put all these clocks all over his room. And then the next morning, wait, wake up early and wait for this habitual late riser to get woken up unceremoniously by a succession of dings and annoying buzzes and whatnot. But he never wakes up because he is, in fact, dead. He died of an overdose of chloral. And that's very strange since chloral is supposed to help a person sleep. And obviously, Jerry Wade had no problems sleeping. So there are those within the party who immediately suspect foul play here. Also, somewhat oddly, there are only seven of the eight clocks that have been placed in Jerry Wade's room. The eighth clock has been thrown onto the lawn through the bedroom window. And the remaining clocks have been arranged on the mantelpiece rather than scattered about the room as they were originally. Um, There are a number of... Whoops. (laughs) So there are a number of suspects. Let's just run through them. And these are all of the people who are at Chimneys for this weekend party. The first we've already referred to, which are Sir and Lady Coot. And Sir Oswald is... I'd say he is a suspect. There are there are a lot of red herring clues. Spoiler, he didn't do it. There are a lot of red herring clues thrown his way throughout the novel. He's a very powerful businessman who has a lot to do with the MacGuffin that's driving this plot, which we'll get to in a second. And his wife is rather put upon, has a tragic air, even though she's kind of a boring person and not much more than a source of comic relief throughout the novel, I would say. They're upwardly mobile in a suspicious way, if that makes sense. Yeah, the servants at Chimneys, who are, of course, the servants that have always been there and who serve the real tenants of Chimneys, have no respect for the coots. And there's there's a bit of comedy and interplay between the servants and the coots at the beginning of the novel to indicate that. We then have like all of the sort of younger folks one of them is Jimmy Thesiger. He's sort of, um, he's a little bit of the instigator of the trouble amongst the younger people, although he also appears to be one of the more conscientious of them, I think. And then we have Rupert Bateman, whose nickname is Pongo, and he is the secretary to Sir Coot. He also went to school with Jimmy Thesiger, and he provides often useful suggestions in an offhanded and aloof way. He's sort of the smart guy that everyone acknowledges as smart, but everyone also hates. Right. That's that's Pongo. There's Bill Eversley. He works for the Foreign Service. Um, we're going to find out he has a relationship with Bundle, who we we all remember Bundle from The Secret of Jimmy's. Or do we? I'm or do sure. we remember Bundle from The Secret of Jimmy's? <laughs> well, scar, scarred, scarred into my memory. Yeah, not really the heroine of The Secret of Chimneys, but certainly the heroine of The Seven Dials Mystery. Bundle, uh, sure. a.k.a. Lady Eileen, is one of the true owners of Chimneys who returns out after this weekend party with her father, Lord Caterham. And their interactions at least provide a lot of comic relief, and Lord Caterham in general is a a bit of a silly character. He was not at the weekend, though, so he's not really a suspect. He was not at Chimneys the weekend that poor Jerry Wade died amidst a bunch of alarm clocks. So next suspect is Ronnie Devereaux, who was indeed at Chimneys when Jerry Wade died. And he seems a little suspicious. He is ostensibly Jerry Wade's best friend, But lo and behold, he is subsequently killed uh, 
rather soon after Jerry Wade is killed, Bundle actually thinks that she runs him over with her car, but then finds out <laughs> that well, he actually has been shot. So Ronnie Devereaux, a suspect, but not for very long, and in fact, our second victim. And then the only other major character who we will at least name, this is of course an Agatha Christie thriller, so there are a bewildering number of characters, but to keep this summary short and sane, we're not going to name all of them. The final person is Lorraine Wade, who is Jerry Wade's half-sister and one of the last people uh, that Mr. Wade checked in on before he passed in his bed at Chimney's. So basically, the action of the story continues and is motivated very much by the fact that Bundle is an extremely curious person. Mm -hmm. And when she and her father take back chimneys from the nouveau riche coots, she finds a letter in her writing desk because her bedroom was actually the bedroom in which Jerry Wade died. This was a letter that he wrote to his sister, Lorraine Wade. And she just gets involved in this mystery and interested in it and invested in it and just digs herself deeper and deeper. So essentially after that letter, we already mentioned she goes driving and bundle it had been established in the secret of chimneys as an extremely reckless driver, and she certainly has not improved her skills in four years. That is why when Ron, when poor Ronnie Devereaux jumps out into the road, she thinks that she ran him over because she's going so quickly, but she didn't. He was shot. He dies. And he says, seven dials tell Jimmy Thesiger. So this leads Bundle to Jimmy Thesiger, who was one of the other youths who had been staying at Chimneys. And the story from there essentially devolves into what I think of as a Scooby gang situation. <laughs> That's of course a reference to Scooby-Doo and the meddling kids in Scooby-Doo that would always investigate haunted mansions or just any variation on thriller tropes. <laughs> These three people, Bundle and Jimmy Thesiger and Lorraine Wade, all for different reasons. Bundle just because she's curious, Jimmy because, you know, two of his friends now have been killed, and Lorraine because her, her brother, or half sort of stepbrother, um, had been killed. They all have a motivation to figure out what the heck is going on here. Bundle manages to figure out that the reference to Seven Dials has to do with the Seven Dials Club, which is this rundown, debauched a nightclub right. in London and she manages to find a secret meeting room and hide herself in a cupboard of course she and does. then eavesdrop on a of course she does and then because this is the kind of book yeah. that we're in and eavesdrop on a conversation that seems to be among a group of people who are planning to steal some papers that have to do with an invention that would revolutionize aircraft somehow this is the MacGuffin that we were talking about this is perhaps one of the most MacGuffiniest MacGuffins I've ever come across because boy do I not care mm -hmm. about what they're potentially stealing and no one else seems to care either. They, the, the, the characters the characters in the book to be clear do not seem to care. 
they don't care at all. I mean, it's it's really hardly even discussed. Just there's something super important that could potentially be stolen at yet another weekend party. So this is now our second weekend party <laughs> in the book. This one is going to be at Wyvern Abbey, the home of one George Lomax, who is another callback to the secret of chimneys. He is an uh, high up official in the British government who is a rather tedious gentleman. And Bill Eversley is actually his secretary. Bundle decides that she has to go and try to get to the bottom of what's going on. And she and Jimmy Thesiger get themselves invited to Wyvern Abbey. Yes. And then they conveniently run into one superintendent battle of Scotland Yard. And he is undercover, which is extra confusing in this book because he did not seem to have any ability to be undercover in The Secret of Chimneys. So why he's undercover in this book is a little bit off. Yeah, he just seems to be a police officer who has the skills that Christy needs him to have to fill whatever plot function she needs him to fill in either The Secret of Chimneys or The Seven Dogs Mystery. For a detective character that's created by Agatha Christie, he is, I think, her most disappointing creation. There's a little bit to be said in his favor, but I, I just don't buy him as a real person, and I'm just not that interested in him. Well, I just don't Sorry, understand why he's playing battle. the role in which he's playing or why he's supposed to be anybody of, for example, the servant class in this. Yeah, I mean, it's really odd that he just shows up and he's posing as one of the help at Wyvern Abbey, and this is something that he has the skills for, and that one of his underlings in, oh, I don't know, the undercover department or any of 20 other departments in Scotland Yard would probably be better at doing. He just needs to be there. So it's very silly. Did we mention that Bundle was locked in a cupboard and eavesdropped on a secret society meeting where people were covering their face with clock masks? (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so at Wyvern Abbey, that at Wyvern Abbey, Superintendent Battle says he's there to make sure that nothing crazy happens over the weekend. Alas, something very crazy happens. Jimmy Thesiger, who again also got himself invited, claims to be accosted by a burglar who had broken into the house and stolen those top secret papers from the bedroom of yet another secretary who had been drugged mm-hmm. in his sleep. And that burglar had dropped those papers onto the lawn of of Wyvern Abbey, where they happened to be picked up by none other than Lorraine Wade, who wasn't even supposed to be there, but who just happened to be walking across the lawn in the middle of the night because even though she didn't get herself invited for the weekend, she didn't want to miss out on the action. So luckily, the papers are actually safe. At no point other than for 10 seconds in this story are the papers that everyone's supposedly worried are going to be stolen are they in any sort of jeopardy the papers are fine nothing matters after that now it's just figuring out what happened jimmy thesiger says that after grappling with this burglar the man ran off but not before shooting jimmy in the arm and he is indeed shot and when they find him he's bleeding out on the floor and he's passed out so um, apparently jimmy had a close shave yeah except he had a close shave because he was in on it he's made all of this up. Jimmy Thesiger did it. He did it. And Lorraine Wade is his accomplice. What? Yeah. Oh my God. They're accomplices. This is all a setup. And they seem to be getting away with it. But fortunately, Bill Eversley, one of those young gentlemen 
who seemed to be a bit of an ass, turns out not to be as much of an ass as he seemed. And he figures out that Jimmy is up to something. And Jimmy thinks that he is drugging Bill Eversley because right. apparently that's how Jimmy does most of his dastardly yeah, deeds is by drugging people. Yeah. Bill pretends to be drugged. And then there's this showdown at the rundown nightclub where the Seven Dials Secret Society meets. Bundle is actually put into danger that Bill had not foreseen, and she's hit over the head. But luckily, she's okay and very lucky for him because he professes his love for her and proposes marriage. And they're going to get married. Yeah, she admits that she's in love with him. And the big revelation is who is actually behind those clock masks of the secret society that Bundle had been eavesdropping on in the cupboard because... Oh, the good guys. The, yeah, because they seem to be bad, but lo and behold, that ambiguous language that she overheard was actually them planning to protect those papers from being stolen, not to actually steal the papers. So the Seven Dials Secret Society is a society for good. And throughout the novel, as in all Agatha Christie thrillers, there's always a mysterious character whose identity must be revealed at the end. We had number four in the big four, so perhaps we've advanced a little bit in that we have number seven (laughs) as the mysterious character whose identity needs to be revealed in this novel. And it actually turns out to be, wait for it, Superintendent Battle. Because again... This society is for good, and they invite Bundle to join the society, to join the good secret society, and she does. The the end. If you guys can't tell, we're perhaps not impressed. The thriller plotting is as problematic as it often is in these Christie thrillers, and there's actually one critical response to the novel by the Times Literary Supplement. This is a contemporary response that said it best. I just want to read this, Mm -hmm. read an excerpt from the review, because I think it just really sums it up. These gothic romances are not to be despised, but they are so different in kind from the story of strict detection that it is unlikely for anyone to be adept in both. Mrs. Christie lacks the haphazard and credulous romanticism which makes the larger canvas of more extensive crime successful. In such a performance, bravura rather than precision is essential. The mystery of Seven Dials and of the secret society which met in that sinister district requires precisely such a broad treatment, but Mrs. Christie gives to it that minute study which she employed so so skillfully in her earlier books. What the review is saying is that Agatha Christie is really good at writing puzzle mysteries. She's not so good at writing thrillers because she writes them like she writes puzzle mysteries with this attention to detail and little flourishes, but she just doesn't nail that broadness that you need to pull off a thriller. And we've argued before that there are some thrillers in which she actually comes close to pulling it off or does even pull it off, such as The Man in the Brown Suit. We definitely, I think, like The Man in the Brown Suit a lot more than perhaps the general Christie-loving populace at large. But yeah, this is we, one we're, where we're, she, we're perti- she doesn't pull it off. We're particularly partial to The Man in the Brown Suit. I think that we're increasingly we realizing that we are like real partisans um, for that book. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of it. No, you know I'm what? not either. I'm going to name check Anne Bettingfeld again. Oh my god, Anne Bettingfeld is the best. (laughs) In theory, I would say. Bundle does a lot of things right. Bundle does a lot of things that you want from a heroine. It's just that the actual the actual plotting of this is just not good. And so you you can't you can't ask that much from her as a character if you don't have that much of a plot to give to her. That's the problem. These Christie thrillers often hang on the heroine who drives the plot 
either being likable or interesting enough to make it work or not. Again, Ann Bedingfeld really works for us. Bundle sort of works here. And then you have something, a book like The Secret of Chimneys, where there wasn't even really an identifiable heroine or hero to hang the ridiculous plot on, which is why we loathed quite frankly. This is all speaking relatively, obviously. Loathing a Christie is loving many other authors, but it's why we we really didn't enjoy The Secret of Chimneys. And she certainly did better, I think, with The Seven Dials mystery than in The Secret of Chimneys. The one thing that I thought was really problematic in that novel was how it kept on switching in third person from right. back and, and this, forth between and different does, people. This does not do This it is like better. That. Yeah, we stick a lot more with Bundle and at times or even with Jimmy Thesiger, but but it didn't have that whiplash <laughs> quality that well, that, that just, really like just, just was problematic in chimneys. Significantly better written. I don't think there's any questioning about that. I don't think that we could make any comment about the fact that this is not a much better written book. Four years might have passed in both the rental history of chimneys and in the writing of Agatha herself in these books. Absolutely. Yeah, the the four years in the school of Christie writing has done her well. I agree with that. The writing is noticeably better. It's doing a lot of the things that we had a problem with in The Big Four. The Big Four had a bit of a specific problem in that it was trying to shoehorn a mystery puzzle and a thriller into one book, but... The thriller plot was just so over-the-top ridiculous that it was hard to swallow, and I found that here as well. Well, I mean, so the, the, plot, the that. plot doesn't make—I would say that the biggest problem here for me is that the plot doesn't actually make sense. Um, yeah, it doesn't It doesn't hang together, but I actually think this is where we should bring up the introduction to the most recent HarperCollins edition, which I believe we both read, mm-hmm. Val McDermott, a mm-hmm. very well-regarded crime writer of today. Right. She makes the point in her introduction that she thinks a lot of people are reading Agatha Christie's thrillers in the wrong way, or at least this specific thriller, because she thinks that Christie is winking in the writing of this book and that she's actually making fun of the thriller genre as she's writing it. And to be fair to her, there's a lot to back that up. There's a lot of textual evidence to back that up. And because it's something that I actually kept on underlining as I was reading the novel because it really annoyed me. It's one of my least favorite things in books when Authors make reference to the fact that the thing that just happened is the kind of thing that happens in books. Right. Because it dri- it drives me crazy because it's a cheat. I think it's a cheat anyway to say, oh, well, this thing that just happened that doesn't seem real and it seems like a thing that happened in a book. Yeah, isn't that crazy? But no, it actually really did just happen. To be fair to Christy, too, there are she does that often. We mentioned Hastings in The Mysterious Affair at Styles is talking about Sherlock Holmes and detective stories practically from page one. Right. But it was just, it felt relentless in this book. Like, just for example, when Bundle is describing the crowd and just sort of the scene at the Seven Dials Secret Society at the rundown nightclub, she says, as a matter of fact, they're the sort of crowd I always imagined until tonight only existed in books. And Jimmy Thesiger is saying it, the whole thing seems unreal. I've read it all a hundred times in books. He, at another point, at Jimmy asks Bundle, you haven't been reading too much sensational literature, have you? There's just a lot of it. And I think that Val McDermott is giving Christie too much credit 
My theory is that Christy realized how ridiculous the plot seemed, and she was just trying to tether it to the ground with this little cheat of saying, yeah, well, this is just the kind of story that it is. To me, it doesn't feel like a truly clever or in any way interesting or groundbreaking meta pastiche thing that's going on here. No, I I don't think so either. When we're looking at her in a broad scale of things, I feel like her best work, even when it's ludicrous, even if we're talking about, let's say, let's say we're talking about Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which is like ludicrous mm-hmm. on its surface, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not because it's so grounded. It's so like sincere in how it's told. Yes. That I, I think that we buy in fully to it. And I think that that, yeah. and I think that that is a situation that we don't have in these pseudo thrillers. Mm-hmm. We don't have that grounding and feeling like we are committed, like we are a member of a sort of community that's involved in the crime. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's such a good way of putting it. She, it's like she's not committing to the genre in which she's writing. In those mystery puzzles, boy, does she commit. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. like she and and when we get our ridiculous solution that involves insane machinations, we're still totally into it and we love it right. and we buy it because it's there's that level of sincerity there and she's mastering it even though and that's how she can pull off that extremity. Here it feels like someone who's saying, eh, I'm not really comfortable with this. And I don't quite know what I'm doing, but let's try to run with it. The The point that Val McDermott is making is obviously a valid point. It's just that I don't buy it also because I think that to play around with a genre, you first have to become a master of the genre. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the idea of an abstract postmodern artist painter, for example, would have to train and be able to copy a bowl of fruit before they're able to play with that. The point that you're making is a point that my mom has always made my, from the time we were kids, which is you can complain if you're a child about Picasso. The nose is in the wrong spot. Mm-hmm. But if you look at early Picasso, Picasso is an incredible painter from a traditional background. You have to know right. how to paint properly before you can turn it upside down. And I totally agree with that. And I think that Christy does that, as you're saying, and we'll and we'll get to that in, in future mystery puzzles. She plays around with that genre and she does amazing things with it and she twists it and she flips it. And yeah. she's we, we've already seen that. That's what she did in Roger yeah, Ackroyd. Roger, you know, that's she did this amazing so twist. So many things are amazing about Roger Ackroyd, but she knows already how to structure it. And we're going to see it... Again and again, we're going to see it in Murder on the Orient Express, obviously. And this introduction, trying to make the case that she's doing that in the thriller genre, that by being self-referential, she's turning it on its head. And I just don't buy it because she's not. She's not actually doing anything interesting or extraordinary or groundbreaking. She's just, I think, showcasing her discomfort with a genre that she's not the master of. I think we've been pretty good about not being defensive about our dear Dame Agatha in ways that we should not be. I like to think that we are holding to that here. Mm -hmm. There are so many ways to respect what she's done. Yeah, but one of them is not necessarily saying that she's an amazing thriller writer. So with that in mind, let's just go over three very basic clue deduction scenarios that do get us to our solution. Mm -hmm. 
because we love to do that, and this is a Christie novel, okay. so we would be remiss if we didn't do that. One of them is becoming a, an old standby for us. Actresses? And that involves an actress, yes. <laughs> Early in the novel, Bill Eversley goes on and on to bundle about this actress he knows whose name it's a fantastic name, is Babe St. Moore. She (laughs) is an American actress, and she wants nothing of it. She doesn't want to hear it. She barely listens to him. The deduction here is really, you know, we say this about handwritten letters. You see a handwritten letter in an Agatha Christie novel or anything that's reprinted or pasted directly into the novel. That's important. Look twice at it. Anytime you see the word actress, note it. Underline it, highlight it, do whatever, do whatever you want with it, because it will almost definitely be important. And that throwaway <laughs> comedic reference to Babe St. Moore actually ends up being important because one of the members of the Seven Dials Secret Society is this woman who poses as the Countess Radsky at Wyvern Abbey, and she's just a, a big part of the intrigue. And it's a big reveal at the end of the novel that she is, in fact, the actress Babe St. Moore who Bill was going on and on about. And she actually provides even a little extra bit of cover because Bundle assumes that Bill is infatuated with that actress. And she also assumes that Bill is infatuated with Countess Radsky. And he's really not. It's just that she's one of his compatriots and cohorts in the secret society. So that allows him to cover the fact that he is genuinely in love with her. So we also get that reveal at the end of the novel. And if we're being honest, that might be the more interesting reveal at the end of the novel than who actually <laughs> murdered Jerry Wade. Yeah, Ryan no, Devereux. I mean, I think, I think that we actually care so little about the actual death in this novel that it's mostly yeah. like, well, who really likes Bundle? <laughs> what, what's going to happen to Bundle? There's more suspense built around Bundle's happiness than around the solving of a double murder. For sure. You, but you do care about some of the characters. And speaking of giving Christy her credit, let's give it to her. There are, in this novel, at least a character or two who I was happy were happy at the end of the novel. It was Bundle? diverting. Yeah, it was diverting to see Bundle and Bill Eversley reach a happy ending. Yes, for sure. I completely agree. I was very, very pleased at the end of the novel that Bundle comes out on top. Absolutely. We touched on this in our summary, but the second clue is that Bundle and Countess Radsky, a.k.a. Babe St. Moore, and others all heard the commotion between Jimmy Thesiger and this supposed burglar at Wyvern Abbey when he was shot, but no one saw it. And that is a major clue in Christie. We've seen it time and time again, probably most notably in the murder of Roger Ackroyd when a dictaphone recording was made to seem as if a dead man was speaking. So if you could hear something but you can't see it, you shouldn't necessarily believe it. Two senses are very much better than one. There are a number of cases that we are going to encounter soon in which we should be really, really aware of this issue, that you cannot rely on one sense. You need confirmation of of two senses, usually those senses being sight and hearing. Probably not always, though. Not always, but I mean, I think also that we have to realize that there's confirmation bias Mm -hmm. in a bunch of ways and that that can lead you in the wrong direction. And really, speaking of confirmation bias, that's our third clue as well, which just has to do with language. And that's something else we've seen from the very beginning in Christie. 
words can be made to seem to mean something very different from what Mm -hmm. they actually mean. Mm -hmm. The one that just comes to mind off the top of my head is that great Poirot short story that takes place in Egypt where Poirot says that he believes in the power of superstition. And of course, Captain Hastings takes that to mean that Poirot believes in superstition itself. But no, he believes in the force of other people believing it. So the confirmation bias here around language is just those couple of words that Ronnie Devereaux says as he's dying in the road to bundle, mm-hmm. tell Seven Dials, Jimmy Thesiger, I'm, I'm mixing up the order of that, but what he essentially meant was tell the good secret society Seven Dials that the villain here, the one who killed me and Jerry Wade, was Jimmy Thesiger, <laughs> not tell Jimmy Thesiger, the supposed the friend dials. and hero, about the yeah. bad Seven Dials society. So right. there's that, and then of course the entire conversation that bundle over here is in the cupboard. Did I mention that bundle was in a cupboard? That one oh, did, also. Gee, did you? <laughs> that one seems to also be a, an evil secret society talking about stealing something when they were actually talking about protecting it. And if you go back and you see what they say, Christie does always play fair with those rules, even in a crazy pants thriller such as this one. So those clues help us get from the world as it appears to be to the world as it actually is. Quickly, we always want to mention adaptations of any of these novels. And there's one. There's just one adaptation. It was done by London Weekend Television in early 1981. These are the same producers who did The Secret Adversary and the Partners in Crime series to follow, which are Tommy and Tuppence Beresford. And I had watched that adaptation of The Secret Adversary, and it looks exactly the same. I mean, I think the sets might be the same. And in fact, one of the actors, the actor who plays Jimmy Thesiger in this adaptation, played none other than Tommy Beresford in The Secret Adversary, which was insanely faithful to the original novel. And this one was as well. I don't know the last time I've watched something that was so faithful to a novel I had just read. It was so faithful that I felt like I was reading the novel again, which was not cool. (laughs) That was not cool. I thought it was interesting that Pat Sandis adapted the novel. That is a female, and she is actually Samantha Bond's mother. Who knew? There were a couple of differences. I think I I want to do a screen capture of Bundle when she's driving in her convertible and almost runs over the dying Ronnie Devereaux because her driving helmet and goggles were just one of the most fantastic things I've ever seen. That was for me was the high point of the entire adaptation. So maybe we'll Instagram that one. And I was going to make one point that the only other positive thing I can say about this book is that it does have a lot of humor in it. I believe that in that introduction, Val McDermott also mentions that there is a certain PG Woodhouse kind of a flavor to this novel as there There are. There kind of is. Oh, there absolutely is. There absolutely is. And a lot of it actually comes from Lady Coote, Sir Oswald's put-upon wife. This is just one little excerpt that I thought was so funny. I'm quoting directly from the book. Lady Coote was sitting on a garden seat doing wool work. The subject was a disconsolate and somewhat misshapen young woman weeping over an urn. Lady Coote made room for Jimmy by her side, and he promptly, being a tactful young man, admired her work. Do you like it? said Lady Coote, pleased. It was begun by my Aunt Celina the week before she died. Cancer of the liver, poor thing. And she's just always a Debbie Downer. (laughs) 
By the way, the only reason I know it's pronounced Salina is because that line was lifted from the book and put into the adaptation, and the actress pronounced it Salina, not Selena. I just like that she's always like described as sort of like a romantic, romantic with a capital R, mm-hmm. wife who's like on the verge of throwing herself off of a cliff. She has an air of tragedy, even though she's never experienced any tragedy whatsoever in her life. And there's another point where she references... Um, I embroidered some handkerchiefs for Sir Oswald with my own hair when we were engaged, which I thought was really funny. (laughs) My favorite single thing in the entire book is that she wants to clear a space for games on the lower lawn. And she's so intimidated by the gardener that he puts her off because he's like, well, we would have to take somebody off the upper hedges for that. I believe it was the lower border, actually. The lower, the lower border, absolutely. <laughs> and so then, when um, Bundle comes back onto the estate, she's like, "Yeah, well, take them off the lower border and fix that." Yeah, I think she says, "Damn the lower border," and if, and the gardener just meekly does <laughs> does as he's told. We didn't talk about this, but there's an amusing side plot in which Bundle accidentally captures the romantic attentions of George Lomax, the host of Wyvern Abbey and the rather tedious politician, and he actually proposes marriage to her. And that is so Woodhouse getting trapped into a marriage proposal. It's funnier when it's Bertie Wooster because he's a chivalrous man and he can't get out of it if the woman actually wants to be engaged and he's just trapped and he's engaged and he's going to have to get married. Bundle can obviously just say no, but it, right. you know, it reminded me both of Woodhouse and also, I can't believe I'm going to compare the two, but the Mr. Collins proposal to Elizabeth Bennett in Pride and Prejudice it reminded me of that. There's one other thing that I actually thought Christy did that was so funny, and this is in the first part of the book when she's describing the weekend gathering at Chimneys, mm-hmm. and there are a bunch of these twit girls mm-hmm. who are with the useless young men. Well, it's really, really funny because they're not even given names. Well, no, they are. Well, no. So the funniest thing is that one of them, whose nickname is Socks, which is just a great nickname, she just keeps on overusing the word subtle because she is apparently an idiot. But then there are these two other girls named Helen and Nancy, and every time one of them speaks, Christy writes, said Helen, and then in parentheses, or possibly Nancy. And it happens three or four times, and it's like even the author that created them has so little interest in these two idiotic women to be able to keep them straight. It's That's, that's deeply funny, no, actually. No, it's really, that's, that's really funny. Well I mean, like, you could read it as misogynist, I suppose, but I don't think that that's how it's intended. Yeah, I mean, all of the comedic and light romance aspects of the story are by far the best parts of this story. Unfortunately, they only take up about 15% of the whole, I would say. Yeah, unfortunately. So the only thing that, that I'll say about the adaptation is that I don't think that the performance of Lady Coots really captured what was what made her so funny in the book. And same thing with Lord Caterham. I think they were both just much funnier and more of a comedic relief in the book than in the adaptation. No, agreed. Moving on to our ranking. Yes. Since this is a novel, we shall rank it. Spoiler on our ranking, this one's not going to do great. No. <laughs> but let's start off with our first category, which is plot mechanics. 
And I think as our listeners can tell, we weren't huge fans of the way that the story worked or didn't work. You know, we, we got to the end. There were some diverting passages along the way, but it just was neither convincing nor masterful. No. That said, we mentioned the secret of chimneys and the whiplash effect of going from inside various people's heads. That certainly worked better, so I don't think we want to give it as low of a mark as we did for that novel. So I'm feeling a four on this one. Yeah, I I think that's totally valid. A four is seems appropriate to me. Okay. Then plot credibility was was just dreadful. This yes. was this was pretty bad, about as bad as I think we've come across. I, I would like to give it a very low mark. I'd say either a two or a three. Let's give it a three. Okay, so detective characterization, we have our superintendent battle. We're told that he is an impressive man, even though he doesn't speak very much. There's a moment in which he seems to be very angry with people who don't take chances. And he says this mm-hmm. uh, by way of approving of Bundle's throw caution to the wind right. attitude, which is interesting and unexpected. It's obviously very unexpected that Superintendent Battle is actually the mysterious number seven, the character who is unmasked at the end of the thriller. And he yeah, he's in a secret good. society also. Yeah, you know, I don't much believe in Superintendent Battle. I don't much care about him. We gave him a five in The Secret of Chimneys. I, maybe a five again. I, I don't think this book really moved the needle on him. If anything, I think it's worse. So, I mean, a five I kind of do, too, actually. I kind of think it might be worse. I think maybe let's give him a four. Let's give him a four. Yeah. I mean, I'd be be more inclined to a four. Yeah. Yeah, just because he's appearing in all these places in various guises, and it just doesn't even seem like a like a real person, or no, certainly not a real agree. a real police officer, a real detective. I mean, my no, God, he's supposed to be Jack. detective. Like, I feel like I feel like Inspector Jab in like, two lines in certain sh- short stories comes off as more of a character than Battle does. Oh, absolutely. God, now I'm thinking maybe even lower than a four, but let's leave it at a four. The one-off characters, we mentioned liking Bundle and being happy that Bundle and Bill ended up together and the side plot of George Lomax proposing to Bundle is amusing. I think that earns about a a five or a six. I like Bundle a little bit. Let's say a six. I think on one-off characters, this book does okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. And then setting in tone, we mentioned that there's a lot of humor in this book. Here's my problem, though. That humor, I mentioned that it makes up about 15% of the whole. The book is not suffused with humor. For me, it was more 85% of this book was a slog. And then there were bits that I liked scattered throughout that doesn't get very high marks for me. And the setting was about as... Absent, Generic as you can possibly yeah, get. We're, we're again at Chimneys, and then we even go to another great estate, Wyvern Abbey, and we just don't get much of a right. description. We know that there was ivy growing on the wall. That's about it, right. which is why I wouldn't give it more than a five. I would actually give it lower than a five. Where do you stand, Catherine? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would be inclined towards, like, let's say a four, in part because I don't think it's doing anything with the setting. I think it could do things. With the setting, right? Because they're in essentially an isolated country place 
but it doesn't even do it doesn't even do anything with that. Right. This novel opens with a murder in a somewhat isolated country house, but we never get that right. kind of locked room effect. No. And then it just rolls it all. just rolls right into a thriller, which is why when we were making our list of suspects, we had to cut it off somewhere because we couldn't list every character in the novel, but we kind of could have because yes. it doesn't even mm-hmm. really matter who was at the original weekend because we just right. leave it so quickly and then just go out into the wide crazy world of the seven dials mystery (laughs) i don't like that i don't like the idea that you are putting something deliberately in an isolated place and then you're doing nothing with it from a place and setting standpoint we should rank it relatively low because also we don't have any description obviously we have already been at chimneys mm-hmm, so sure. i suppose i suppose as a reader we already know what it's like there sure. but like it's not further described in any kind of compelling way no yeah a four at most yeah. wow but let's say four then for our deductions for ways in which this book is stuck in its time here this novel does okay. We we do have a couple of moments in the a description of the Seven Dials nightclub. Here we go. The company was extremely mixed. There were portly foreigners, opulent Jewesses, a sprinkling of the really smart, and several ladies belonging to the oldest profession in the world. I think that opulent Jewesses might be the next title of my favorite band or at least an album or something like that. Opulent Jewesses and ladies belonging to the oldest profession in the world. That might just be the title of a Whit Stillman movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Let's move on. Another one is she makes reference to knowing that someone was German by the fact that they had a flat back of the head. I didn't even know that that was a thing. I know that's a thing. And um, a couple of other throwaway references that we don't really need to go over. Not many. I really could only find five. And those two were the worst offenders. So I would say one deduction, which is very low for our Yeah, I mean, I feel like here. One, one or nothing. I'm going to hold to one. Because here's the thing. We've given zero deductions twice. One for Murder on the Links and one for the murder of Roger Ackroyd. And... Those really felt like there were none of these issues that we sometimes grapple with in Agatha Christie, such as xenophobia. It's, and it's usually some element of xenophobia, let's be honest. Yeah, of course it is. And there yeah, often is sure. in these thrillers because we're actually dealing with an international yeah. cast of characters. So that's no, why, to course. me, it just feels like it exists, whereas in Murder on the Links and The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, it didn't because right. we were in a closed society, essentially. Right. Yeah, no, no, no. No, no, I think, I think one is fine. Okay. Which, again, I mean, is, is quite low. So our final tally then is 4 plus 3 plus 4 plus 6 plus 4 minus 1, which is 20. And for those keeping score, which would be me and Catherine, <laughs> here's our <laughs> here's just real quick our current ranking from least popular to most popular. The Secret of Chimneys, The Big Four, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, The Seven Dials Mystery, Murder on the Links, then a tie between The Secret Adversary and The Mystery of the Blue Train, then The Man in the Brown Suit, one of our favorites, and of course, the front runner for now, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. So that is The Seven Dials Mystery. Join us next week when we discuss another Poirot short story from the Poirot Investigates collection, The Disappearance of Mr. Davenham. 
we would also like to mention that we will be attending a conference in England in June. Kemper, right? Yes, the fourth annual Christie Conference at Cambridge University. We will be presenting a paper there on issues of Agatha Christie and justice. We are very excited to be joining what seems to be a very distinguished group of people. More on that in the weeks and months to come. Yeah, and so we're thrilled about that, and we just wanted to tell everybody, in case um, any of you happen to be around Cambridge in June, please sign up for that. Yeah, please sign up for the conference, and we'll include information about that. We'll at least send out a tweet to that effect, but it is open to fans and readers, and we would obviously encourage any listeners to come. And we will try to figure out a way to do some sort of pod, I think, around our trip. Oh, absolutely. And uh, after a short story or two, just to give people a heads up if they're reading ahead, our next novel is... Miss Marple! Miss Marple, The Murder at the Vicarage, 1930. <laughs> it's getting real. We're in We're a new so decade. We're so excited. In the meantime, you can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash allaboutagatha. You can find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find me personally at Kemper Donovan. You can find Catherine at Brobcat. You can find us on Instagram at allaboutagatha. And if you do listen to the podcast on iTunes, please take a moment to rate and review us as it really helps us out. And we would just also love to hear what you think. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye.